Good morning, First Baptist. Great to see so many people here this morning. Thank you for coming out. I need to mention, uh, as of tomorrow, there will be zero restrictions on churches here in Wyoming. Praise God. Hallelujah. So uh, next Sunday, I don't know, I don't know, I think we're all kind of digging this setup, though, you know? You got some more leg room. As Shane said, we're flying first class with the rows spread out like this. Uh, one other thing to mention is we are also planning on having a baptism next Sunday. We're picking up some people that were uh, supposed to have gotten baptized last time. So this will be an adult baptism in that we won't be offering the normal classes we would require for kids who'd want to be baptized. There's another twist to this. It's very interesting. We're planning on having an outdoor baptism next Sunday after the second service right out here in the creek. So uh, after the second service, we'll file out there and we'll do a baptism for some adults, Lord willing and weather permitting, we'll do it that way. If not, we'll do it as we normally do in the baptistry. So hope you'll be here next Sunday for that. Uh, you may or may not have heard of a guy by the name of Jean-Francois Chavalet. It's just a fun name to say. Jean-Francois was known for one thing and one thing only his ability to walk a tightrope. He was recruited by P.T. Barnum back in the 1850s. And he spent a summer in 1859 working at Niagara Falls. And he was an expert tightroper. He would walk out on that rope. He could fry an omelet. Uh, he could play music. And he could also walk a wheelbarrow. That's an actual photo of him going across the falls. And at this time, when he decided to take a wheelbarrow back and forth, he took it across one side and said, uh, do you all know Francois is a fantastic tightrope walker? The crowd all cheered, yay, we do. Do you believe I could walk the wheelbarrow back across Niagara River? Yay, we do. Do you believe I could do it with someone in the wheelbarrow? Yay, we do. <laughs> then he asked the question you all know is coming. Well, who's going to get in? <laughs> Crickets. Nobody threw their hand up in the air to get inside that wheelbarrow. Can you blame them? But you see, there's a big difference between saying you believe something, an intellectual assent to believing in something, and actually putting all of that faith into action. Now, they said they believed. I think intellectually they may have thought they believed, but when it came to putting their life on the line, whoa, can I really trust Jean-Francois to get me across the falls. That kind of faith is a dead faith. That kind of faith is a faith that lacks the one in whom they have placed that faith. What kind of faith do we have? Is it a faith that's standing on the shore of the Niagara Falls or is it a faith that is in motion? You know, in order for faith to really be working, you can sort of think of a bicycle. You stand a bicycle up. If it's not in motion, what's it do? It falls right over. But when you start riding that bicycle, when you get into motion, now it's something you can ride. And that's the way we want our faith to be. And the subject I want to talk about is how do I put my faith in action? How do I get my faith in motion? When is my faith actually doing what it is intended to do? That's where we are in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. If you would stand with me for the reading of Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be in verses 19 through 25, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You may be seated. So for weeks and even months at this point, I've been talking about this main theme in the book of Hebrews. And I want a little audience participation this morning. Three words. Three words that sum up the main message in the book of Hebrews. Say it with me. Don't stop believing. Very good. Don't stop believing. The author of Hebrews is encouraging his audience. You're about to go through hard times. It's difficult. In the midst of that, don't stop believing. Have a confidence in what you have trusted, in whom you have trusted. And this morning, we're going to look at this passage. It kind of centers around three charges or commands. Draw near to God. Hold on to hope. Encourage one another. Those are the three commands. I want to follow those up. We'll talk about three diagnostic questions we can ask ourselves to see if we're actually living out those commands and charges. So we'll start talking about these three commands in the passage, and then we'll talk briefly about three follow-up questions to that. We see that first command, draw near to God, in this uh, beginning, these beginning verses. Brothers, and listen to me carefully here, because he's, he's summing up what we've been talking about here in Hebrews uh, chapter 10. And he's talking about the why of drawing near to God. He says, brothers, first of all, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, Jesus made a way through his sacrifice into the presence of God. He's drawing again on that Old Testament imagery. He's been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. We have confidence to go to that most holy, holy place, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Recall what happened when Christ died. The curtain was split from top to bottom, making a way for mankind to enter into that most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence resided. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, again, Christ is the high priest. In the order of, you may remember the guy, his name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest that came before the nation of Israel was founded. In a sense, he was priest for both Jew and Gentile. Jesus was a priest and is a priest for both Jew and Gentile. He presides over the house of God. That's all of us. And what do we do? We draw near. We draw near to God. That's primarily in prayer. It's also speaking of drawing near in worship. And then he talks about the how. Well, how do we draw near to God? Well, it starts out there. It says, with a true heart, with a true heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I was probably in my 20s before I was aware of what emotions were. You know, I was an engineer, right? We are paid to think, not feel. Uh, but we have this part of us. It's this visceral part of us called our heart. And I love this. You can call it a definition of what this heart is. This is from Guthrie. It says, the heart often represents the inner life of a person which may involve one's thoughts, will, emotions, or character. It's that 
place from which you make your decisions. You may think you're just making intellectual decisions. No, I, I make my decisions based on fact, thank you very much. Well, no, you don't. You know what? None of us do. When we make a decision, we're bringing in our will, our emotions, we're bringing in our intellect. We're making a decision from the heart. And we approach God with his true heart. Some versions say a sincere heart. We're approaching God in a, in a way in which we are completely submitting all of those things to him. Sometimes you may feel it more. Sometimes you may be thinking it more. Sometimes it may be a, just a total act of your volition, your will. I am going to submit myself to you, God, even though I don't feel like it. That's approaching God with a true and sincere heart. It's not always easy. Then the verse goes on talking about the how to do this. Uh, in full assurance of faith. In full assurance of faith. This is speaking about a faith that would have gotten into that wheelbarrow. This is a faith that is confident in who God is and what he's done. And then it continues, why can we approach in full assurance of faith? Again, verse 22, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In the Old Testament, there was lots of allusions to being washed. You'd actually physically have to wash yourself. But see, that only gets you clean on the outside. Jesus gave us a cleansing that goes way down, even into the immaterial part of us. Our very heart and soul have been cleaned. So we can approach God with this clear conscience. This is how we draw near to God. Both the why we draw near to God and the how of how we draw near to God. And again, this primarily happens in prayer and in times of worship. This is when we are drawing near to God. And then it goes on, uh, the second command that we're given, hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. This comes from verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Some versions say unswervingly, for he who promised is faithful. So we've got this second command, and it's talking about this steadfast hope that we live by. And there is a strong relationship and connection between faith and hope. There's a theologian by the name of Jorgen Moltmann who wrote about this connection between faith and hope, and he said this, faith binds man to Christ. Hope sets this faith open to the comprehensive future of Christ. That means we look and find hope in the future that Christ had his ascension, his resurrection. Hope, therefore, the inseparable companion of faith. Hope is, therefore, the inseparable companion of faith. Without faith's knowledge of Christ, hope becomes a utopia and remains hanging in the air. But without hope, faith falls to pieces, becomes a faint-hearted and ultimately a dead faith. It is through faith that man finds the path of true life, but it is only hope that keeps him on that path. Have you thought about this? We have a hope today. Today, there will be circumstances that we are put through that are conforming us to the likeness of Christ. In addition to that, today, we will be brought deeper into the mysteries of God. We have a daily faith that makes life worth living and we have an eternal hope 
We have this eternal hope that we're going to be with Christ for all eternity. We've got a daily faith and hope. Then we've got this eternal hope. Faith breeds hope. We believe something to be true, and it makes us hopeful. It gives us hope. And we hold on to this unswervingly, tightly, not letting it go. No matter what circumstances we're in, we have a hope, not dependent on circumstances. Atlanta's on fire. You may have seen that last night. Metropolitan cities are in upheaval. We are in trying and difficult times that doesn't affect our hope. Our hope is separate from the things that are going on in our world. We have this faith and hope. God's world is in control. Then the final charge the author gives his audience is to encourage one another. Encourage one another. This is from verses 24 and 25. Um, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So with this sense of urgency, as the text says, the day is drawing near. Hallelujah, the day is drawing near. Someday this whole thing is going to end, but until then, we've got this urgency. We've got things that we're supposed to be doing to encourage each other to love and good works. Interestingly, it says... Uh, stirring up one another. In some verses it says to spur one another on. There is a notion here to make each other irritated in this. You don't want to go too far in that. But we're, it's, it's as though we are irritatingly encouraging one another to what? To love and good works. So what kind of love and good works are we being called to? Well, be creative. Be creative in how you can love and serve people. You know, something I used to do, I lived back in Maryland, and there was a lot of toll roads in Maryland. It was fun when I was going to a toll to pay for the toll of the person that was coming up behind me. And I'll tell you what made it fun, to just watch the toll booth operator try to explain to that person that somebody in front of them had just paid their toll. That, that made it worthwhile right there. What kind of love and creative good works could you be spurring each other on to? It can look, look, look so differently. Uh, encouraging each other uh, can mean being transparent with one another about your own hurts and your own insecurities and your own difficulty. That can oftentimes spur someone on to open up about their hurts and insecurities. Sharing from time to time something that you see in someone, maybe a gifting that they should be executing, living out for the service of God. Love each other, stir each other up. So, how are we doing at these things? I want to offer three questions to, to diagnose us in, in asking ourselves, well, how do, I, how do I do at putting my faith in action in motion by living out these three commands? And first of all, three questions to ask. Uh, what do you want? What do you want? If you're honest about what your heart desires, what would you say? Is it to go deeper into the things of God, however that may look like? Is it to get rich? Is it to have a big house and a whatever? Do you know that if you aim at anything other than God to fulfill your deepest desires, you will come up wanting? I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in.
What does your heart yearn for? And then secondly, just the second one, it's not here. I don't know where it went. But to what are you committed? What are you committed? Um, there's a book that was written called uh, A Time for Everything, and then it tells the story of a, a young man by the name of Martin Rowe. And Martin Rowe was in a tractor accident. Uh, he was a very young man. He was riding on a tractor with his, with his father. The tractor flipped. It crushed one of his arms and left it inoperative. He's a very young man. Uh, I think he was under, under 10. I think he was about 8 years old. And left the other arm severely injured. He was laying there in a hospital bed listening to his parents talk about the amount of hospital debt they had incurred, about $32,000. His mother came into the room. He just heard their conversation. He said, Mother, I'm going to pay off that hospital debt. That little boy in that little bed with those ruined arms, I'm going to pay it off. He got out of the hospital. He started collecting bottles. And then he found out he could uh, collect more money by taking aluminum cans in for recycling. And he raised about $400 on his own. Then a company found out what he was doing, and they started donating their scrap metal to him. In the end, he raised that $32,000. True story. Working after school, two ruined arms. Now, why did he do that? Because he saw a goal to which he was going to commit himself, that he wasn't going to be swayed. He knew it was going to be hard. Do we have that kind of commitment to our faith, to our Lord? Do we have a hope that we are going to hold on to unswervingly? That means at times it's going to be hard. We are being thrown, we're having obstacles thrown at us all the time. We've got to respond to with, with maturity to keep going on to stay committed. And then finally, and it's not here, with whom are you going to walk? With whom are you going to walk? None of us can do this thing alone. Uh, all of us Christians, you know, we're in the process of developing eternal friendships. You know that? That the people you're friends with that are also believers are going to be your friends for all eternity? Something to think about. And we need people. If you look at the context of this passage, you can't do this passage by yourself. If you're going to encourage other people and stir up other people, guess what? You better have other people in your life. This is one more quote. This is from Charles Spurgeon. I actually put this in my application while I was applying to First Baptist Church because one of the questions was, what have you learned in the past year? And, and it's something that I learned when I was transitioning from West Virginia to Wyoming was how desperately I needed my close friends. Spurgeon says this, The friend in need is the friend indeed, and such friends, I say again, are scarce. He's speaking in the Old English, When thou hast found such a man or woman, Improve the sincerity of his friendship when he has been faithful to thy father and to thee. Grapple him to thyself with hooks of steel and never let him go. If you find a friend like this that sticks with you through the good times and through the bad times when the only thing that you can offer them is tears and depression, you have found a friend indeed. And don't let him go. I want to sum up all this by saying, be a lovingly irritable encourager. <laughs> be a lovingly irritable encourager. You know, whenever I was living back in Maryland and I had made that decision, actually I hadn't made the decision yet, I was trying to decide, do I go and do this pastoral ministry thing I was 
in my late 20s. Frankly, I had a very comfortable, lucrative career, but I had this burning desire to go to seminary and become a pastor. I mean, it was like, I, I couldn't stand it anymore. But there was part of me that, would, that was looking for somebody to say, this is a bad idea. Because I was comfy, you know? I wanted to sort of stay where I was. So I started talking to people. And you know what they said? You need to go. You need to go. I remember we were in a community group that actually took up a collection for us to pay for our uh, trip down to Dallas, Texas. Now, we had no idea how we were going to pay for things after that. We had quit our jobs. We just left. We just went. But had I not been encouraged by those people to do that, I don't know if I would have ever gone. You have no idea how much your encouragement may help someone else. So be an irritably loving encourager. Please pray with me. Father God, we, we love you and trust you. Lord, I pray that we would put our faith into action. That we would live out these commands that we've been given, these charges that were given to this ancient audience are still very true for us today. And we ask in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.